This podcast episode is brought to you by Paleo Valley's Organic Extra Virgin Olive Oil. Now, we all know that many olive oils are cut with seed oils or that they are rancid, and so it's not always easiest to find a quality and properly sourced olive oil. Yes, in case you didn't know, many store bought olive oils are diluted or blended, compromising both taste and quality, and may even cause rancidity. I'm really glad that Paleo Valley's extra virgin olive oil remains pure and unadulterated, sourced from a single organic valley in Greece. Paleo Valley ensures freshness and nutrient content by packaging their olive oil in dark glass bottles. At a certain point, I stopped using extra virgin olive oil, but once our practice started working with people with chronic inflammatory response syndrome or SIRS, we started recommending it for the reduction of TGF beta 1. It is an immune system marker that shows inflammation both for COVID 19, SIRS, and actually many other illnesses. So if your TGF beta 1 is high, you may want to try incorporating a little bit of extra virgin olive oil. Make sure to check it out. It comes in a two pack package. And remember, All Paleo Valley products are guaranteed with a money back guarantee. Go to paleovalley.com slash nwj to get 15% off your order. Thanks for supporting companies that support this podcast. Hey guys, it's Judy from Nutrition with Judy. Thanks for joining me today. While you're here, please make sure to subscribe, hit the bell, like this video. And if you're listening to this on podcast, please make sure to leave a five star review. This allows me to get in front of more people. So thank you for that. My name is Judy Cho, and I am board certified in holistic nutrition. I focus on getting to root cause healing, and oftentimes that's using the carnivore cures. Meat only elimination diet. Today, I had the pleasure of sitting down again with Bart K. Last time we spoke about exercise, he mentioned something about the Randall cycle. And that got me really curious. And I started digging into it a lot more. I looked at some of his videos and then some evidence based research on the Randall cycle. It's so fascinating. And it really, really impacts people that eat a meat only diet because once you start introducing carbohydrates, it can affect things in a not so ideal way. For those of you that don't know Bart K, make sure to check out his channel and check out our last interview. I will put all of that information in the show notes. Bart K is a former senior lecturer in human physiology and a professor of health science. Bart worked in academia for several decades as a teacher, a publishing researcher, and as a consultant before retiring in 2018 to pursue his own goals as a social media influencer, entertainer, and educator. Bart's areas of expertise are in the physiology of rest and exercise, cardiovascular pathophysiology, statistics research methods, biochemistry, metabolic pathways, human nutrition statistics, and research design. I talk about how fructose is not ideal from fruits because from a fructose content or from certain organ meats because of the purine content. Well, Bart K puts a lot of this into perspective when we talk in detail about the Randall cycle and how we have to pick a side when it comes to energy sources that provide us ATP in the mitochondria. Make sure to listen to this full episode as it has so much information about the Randall cycle. And if you're able to watch it on YouTube, it's probably better because there's a lot of visuals. If you are slowly starting to add a lot more of the sweeter carbohydrates to your meat only diet, you may want to listen to this as you may regress in some of your healing. 
Let's get right into the interview. Hello, Bart. I am so excited to have you back on again. Last time we spoke, you mentioned a little bit about Randall Cycle. I was honestly pretty new to it. And then ever since then, I've watched several videos on your channel where you talk a lot more in detail. I think it's really, really important information for us to understand if we are deciding to add carbohydrates back to a higher fat or a meat you know, a carnivore diet and the ramifications of that, you know, I've talked about possibly the uric acid cycle, gout, and these other things with purines and fructose, but the Randall cycles actually affects everything in all foods. It's not just fructose food. So I'd love for you to just take over and educate us with the wisdom that you can share about the Randall cycle. Sure, sure. Be my absolute pleasure, Judy. First of all, thank you very much for having me back again. It's always a pleasure to talk to you and to your people. And if you're not subscribed to my channel as well, folks, do consider going across there and subscribing. Fair warning, though, over there, things are a bit different. I do do tend to use some short words just for a bit of clickbaity, you know, just for fun. But the the information, yeah, the information is still good. Anyway, let's deal with Randall. And what I need to say to you up front, everybody, is that this, if you haven't heard this before, this is probably the single most important biochemistry lesson you will ever sit through. So please do sit up straight, face the front, stop throwing paper darts at the back and pay attention because this is critical for you to understand. Yeah. Basically, how does this all come about? Right. Why does this all come about? I guess. The first thing to say is this is not new information. All right. We're looking at an image of the, um, the discoverer or the proposer if you like, of the Randall cycle. This is Sir Philip Randall, 1926 to 2006. And he proposed the Randall cycle in an article which was published in April of 1963. So this is this Randall cycle idea is not a new idea. This is not some earth-shattering idea. This is not something that is new and fangled. We have known about this absolutely since 1963, and it's been largely ignored by the nutritional fraternity at large for some reason, for some incomprehensible reason. I cannot work out what the reason is that this has been ignored because this is so important. Why is this so important, Judy? Well, this is important because... There are a number of commentators currently running around on the internet suggesting to people that it's a really good idea on the carnivore diet for you to add in an amount of carbohydrate every day for various reasons, which are false reasons, which we can get to later if you like. They do not withstand um, even the most cursory refutation, really. You know who you are, you people that are running around saying to people you should eat a bunch of carbohydrates every day. The Randall cycle suggests a number of things to us, including the absolutely unequivocal means definite, the definite reason why that is absolutely, definitely contraindicated, which is another word for don't do that. It is bad for you. Basically, the way we need to view carbohydrate in the diet is we need to view it as what it is, and that is it is a toxin. It is a poison. There is no place whatever in the human diet 
for exogenous carbohydrate in your diet. None at all. And the Randall cycle tells us why that is so, which I'll get to when I stop waffling about it. Okay, so the background is that for the last four and a half million years, give or take, humans and immediately pre-human species have lived on this planet under a given lifestyle, that lifestyle being obligate hypercarnivore. How do we know that is true? How do we know that is definitely true? None of us were alive four and a half million years ago. Am I just guessing here? No. Here's why not. Because what we can do is a thing called stable isotope testing. What we can do is we can find the human and and immediately pre-human remains there are skeletons, skeletal structures, long bones that are left behind. We can find those all over the world, and we can open those long bones up, and we can get some collagen out of those bones. Collagen is a protein. It's the most common protein in the human body, and you'll find a significant amount of collagen in long bones. Collagen is a very stable protein. It dries out, obviously, after the body dies, but it remains intact for tens and hundreds of thousands of years. No problem at all. We can still find viable collagen in the long bones millennia later even. And we can analyze the makeup of that collagen in terms of the stable isotope makeups, in terms of the carbon and the nitrogen found in that collagen in those long bones. And that tells us slam dunk, no question, no debate, no maybe, no if, no but. It tells us what that individual definitely ate during its lifetime, down to the specific speciation of animals that that human being was predating on and eating. And what that data tells us is that human beings, for at least 350,000 years, which is as long as human beings have existed in our current form, we have definitely unequivocally eaten a diet which consisted 80% the flesh and fat of large ruminant animals with a few other animals thrown in here and there, and 20% very, very fibrous, very, very starch, poor roots and tubers, basically very, very fibrous materials. And that 20% of fibrous materials was stuff that we were digging up, collecting, taking home, boiling the hell out of probably and eating as some kind of gruelly slop type stuff to subsist when the hunt was unsuccessful or the animals were not there to predate upon. Okay, And it wasn't starch rich like current tubers and roots are that have been selectively bred to be so. This was basically fiber is what these people were eating. Now, as you know, fiber breaks down in the enteric system only under the influence of bacteria that basically break it down a little bit. And what they produce for us is short-chain fatty acids, not carbohydrates. Okay, So basically, the human diet for 350,000 years, up to the point where the agrarian revolution kicked in about 8,000 years ago, human beings ate a diet which, to all intents and purposes, was 100% protein and fat, given that the fiber broke down to short-chain fatty acids and not carbohydrates. There was no carbohydrate in the human diet at all. None. Zero. 
What about when they say that there was like berries around? Okay, two weeks a year, yes, two two or three weeks a year, seasonally for some human beings, there were berries around. Humans did obviously take advantage of that. They did eat berries. We did still have a salivary amylase gene, of course, because there's no negative selection pressure to knock it out. So, of course, we've still had that. And as we get talking about the Randall cycle, you'll see why that may well have been a very, very important thing. And it may well also be even a thing that also helped to inform how the Randall cycle did evolve in human beings uh, as well. So yes, you're quite right, Judy. There were, there were a couple of weeks of year, a couple of weeks during the year when there was some carbohydrate in the diet. Quite right. Um, I'm talking across the, the vast majority of the year, the other 50 weeks of the year or so, give or take, no carbohydrates at all, zero. So good, thanks. Great correction there. Absolutely right. All right, so let's deal with this Randall cycle. What is it? Why is it? Why do I go on about it so much? I mean, it's it seems to anyone that watches my channel and watches my material, they will know this is streets ahead of anything else is my favorite topic, my favorite thing to discuss. The favorite point I bring up, especially when I'm indulging in the debunkment of people who suggest that we should eat a, a rich plant-based diet or indeed those people running around saying, yes, sure, eat carnivore, but also make sure you throw in some carbohydrates as well. And uh, and this is the reason why you ought not do that. Okay, what I want to do is deal with this Jolly Randall cycle thing. I want to look at it from two different angles. It's important that people understand that these two angles are two aspects of looking at the same thing. This is not an either-or situation. A lot of people, because I, sh I show two diagrams, and I talk about one diagram, this one being where glucose is the predominant fuel source in the body, and the other one where fats are the predominant fuel source in the body, and people then go away sometimes with the idea that either or situation prevails. No. Both these two charts that I'm going to show you are both in effect at all times simultaneously i hope that's clear this is a this is a this and that not this or that situation and that's very very important to understand okay so what are we looking at here at the top of this image we're looking at a blue area there where it says glucose and lcfa which stands for long chain fatty acids that blue space is the extracellular fluids outside of the cell in this case it's the blood the extracellular fluid it's that series of compartments of fluids um, in the body in other words outside the cell membrane outside of the of the working cell then we have a tan colored area or the middle section there where most of the action appears to be that is the cell fluid the cell cytosol inside the fluid but outside of the mitochondria so if you remember, mitochondria are the powerhouses of the cell. The mitochondria is where you generate most of your ATP for your cellular work, your, your the, the, the roles that cells do. Mitochondria, basically, the reaction factories where we, we, we react oxygen with hydrogen to re grossly oversimplify the thing. And thus, we make water and release a bunch of chemical energy in so doing because that's exothermic. And that energy is encapsulated to a large degree to make ATP, which is our cellular energy currency, if you like to think of it that way. All right, so that's the tan area in the middle. And the green area is inside the mitochondria, the workings inside the mitochondria, where all that energy, all that ATP is created. All right. 
This is the situation where a person has been consuming a diet which is rich in carbohydrates. Now, let me define rich in carbohydrates for you right up front so that you know what I mean by rich in carbohydrates. You have a requirement in your body because of your brain's total dependence really upon glucose to survive and also because every muscle cell in your body requires glucose to be able to function, a really active human being, not a completely sedentary human being, also not an athlete, but sort of somewhere middle of the road sort of person who is active, typically to maybe 300 grams of carbohydrates per day is the requirement for life. Luckily, because carbohydrate was not available to human beings for the vast majority of the last at least 350,000 years, and actually more likely four and a half million, the human body has a system to generate that two to 300 grams of carbohydrate itself. And it generates that from non-carbohydrate precursors. For example, the glycerol backbones of fatty acid molecules, lactate, which comes from pyruvate, as you can see at the bottom of the screen there. And there are a number of what's called what are called gluconeogenic amino acid precursors as well. So basically what I'm telling you is you are capable, your body has all the enzymes to make sugar, to make glucose from glycerol out of out of fat molecules, from monocarboxylates such as pyruvate, lactate, that sort of stuff, and also from some of the proteins that you consume. That's what's kept us alive for 350,000 years while there was basically zero carbohydrates available except for maybe a couple of weeks during the year when the berries were ripe. Anything over and above that is toxic. So does that mean that you have the ability to eat 300, 200 or 300 grams of carbohydrates and get away with it a day? No, because gluconeogenesis doesn't stop. It's, it's going to keep happening because your body is so attuned to making glucose every day because it's that's how your genes are designed. That's what it's supposed to do. You're not supposed to eat any carbohydrates at all. So any carbohydrate basically whatsoever that you pour down your neck on any given day almost certainly is going to end up being a problem in terms of this Randall cycle here. Here is why. Glucose in the bloodstream, glucose here at the top, outside the cell. In other words, that's been delivered to the cell because you've got glucose in your blood. You've got glucose in your blood, A, because of gluconeogenesis, and B, because you've poured carbohydrates down your neck in your diet as well. The glucose is transported from the outside of the cell to the inside of the cell in on a transporter, a, a protein transporter called GLUT4. GLUT4 transports glucose from the outside to the inside. Then what happens is we have a series of reactions, and we have two isoforms of another enzyme called Phosphofructokinase, PFK, isoform 1 and isoform 2, and they function in order to bring the glucose down to the next step in the chain. So we then get a molecule resulting from those interactions there called fructose 1,6-biphosphate, or in this case, it's just called FRU1,6P2, fructose one six biphosphate. Okay, fantastic. From there, a molecule called pyruvate is generated by some other enzymes. And then pyruvate goes through a series of reactions when you're using 
glucose as a fuel source, where it's broken down to a substance called acetyl coenzyme A in the middle here. Acetyl coenzyme A is the feed in, the fuel source, if you like, that runs a thing called the Krebs cycle, or usually it's called the TCA cycle. Sometimes it's called the tricarboxylic acid cycle. You will have heard of one of those terms. It's the main cycle that is used to produce hydrogen for reaction with oxygen in the mitochondria to create water, release energy, and that energy is used to make ATP. And the end results of that are carbon dioxide plus water. So basically what happens is the carbon-hydrogen skeletons of the food stuff are split apart. The hydrogens are fed down one chain. The carbon is added to oxygen, and that's what we get, basically. That causes the Randall, not the Randall, the TCA cycle to proceed more rapidly because you're now feeding it with more fuel, the acetyl coenzyme A. And the first intermediary of the TCA or Krebs cycle is a thing called citrate. Sometimes it's referred to as citric acid. It's the stuff that you find in oranges and lemons and citrus fruit. It's also the first intermediary of the TCA cycle in in the body. And then if there is a buildup of citrate inside the mitochondria because there is a lot of glucose going in there, then that citrate will leak out into the cell cytosol, back into the tan area. So now we're up here. And if there's a buildup of citrate in that cell fluid, that will directly deactivate phosphofructokinase 1. It will also deactivate GLUT4. What's going on here, Judy? Why would it do that? Well, sugar, glucose, inside our cells, at a concentration above what our cells are designed to run on, is toxic. It causes damage to protein structures, which is what a cell is. It's a protein structure. It causes damage to DNA in the nucleus of the cell. It destroys cell membranes. Basically, the disease diabetes is elevated blood sugar. Why does the blood sugar elevate? Precisely because the Randall cycle protects the more important parts of your body, the cells of the body, from that damage. How does it do that? It locks that door, the GLUT4. That is what insulin resistance is. It's your cell telling the external environment, the blood, we do not require any more sugar in the cell. In fact, if there was more sugar in the cell than there is right now, it would start destroying the cell. So the cell protects itself. It locks the door right there. It also stops the production of sugar through that pathway by blocking out PFK1 as well. So basically too much sugar locks itself out. It's also immediately unlockable as soon as all that excess sugar has run through the system that drags the citrate back down, that unlocks the door and lets more sugar in. If you eat more sugar though, it will lock the door again. So hang on, you weren't listening before. So hopefully that makes some good sense there. All right. So too much sugar will lock out sugar. The other thing that also happens is because you've got a whole bunch of acetyl coenzyme A pooling because of all of the sugar going through this pathway here, what that will actually do is also that will lock out this long chain fatty acyl coenzyme A molecule from becoming acetyl coenzyme A through allosteric inhibition, basically. So not only does the sugar lock out sugar, it locks out fat as well. So now what we've got is a situation where neither sugar nor fat 
can feed the cell the energy because there's too much energy already there. It doesn't need any more energy. There is plenty of substrate to run the TCA cycle to produce the reducing equivalents for the oxygen to produce the ATP. That cell is running at maximum capacity. More fuel is just going to damage the cell, so it locks everything out, basically. So that's that's the situation where you've got a lot of sugar happening. So the take-home message here is this. Sugar, above the concentration that sugar should be, is always toxic and will always activate the Randall cycle to some degree or another. Also important to understand that the Randall cycle is not an on-off situation. It's a sliding scale situation where when I'm saying this locks out that, I don't mean on-off switch. I mean a slidable scale from fully that stuff can traverse through the pathway through to fully blockaded and nothing gets through. So the particular energetic state of every individual cell determines that cell's ability to either oxidize substrates and produce energy or to be somewhat inhibited, moderately inhibited, very inhibited, or indeed completely blocked, depending on how much energy has pulled in that cell. So when you get a systemic situation where your whole body is full of sugar, everything is locked up, and it's locked up precisely to protect the cells from damage. So the sacrificial lamb, if you like, becomes the red blood cells, which we measure the damage to our red blood cells through glycative damage via a thing called the HbA1c test, which tells us basically how high our blood sugars have been over the last 28 days or so. And the other sacrificial lamb becomes the epithelial cells which line our vascular tree. Because those cells can be replaced generally much more rapidly, and because generally in our evolutionary past there was no amount of carbohydrate being consumed to speak of, this was a, a very rare occasion where this, this cycle would be activated, and the body had 50 weeks of the year to repair itself. As such, no real big deal. And so given that epithelial cells replace themselves every few months, as do red blood cells, fine, we'll, we'll, we'll sacrifice these guys. They can be damaged by this high circulating sugar, and that's no real issue. The problem nowadays is that we're doing it, most of us, all the time, every day, multiple times a day. We are pouring sugar into our systems. Now, when I say sugar, Judy, strike the word sugar and insert carbohydrates, all of them. All carbohydrates break down to sugar. Only exception is fructose, which is metabolized directly to fat in the liver because there's no glucose yet. But to all intents and purposes, anything you eat that contains carbohydrate, metabolically it is sugar and it is toxic for that reason. Simple as that. Hey guys, just to let you know, my Carnivore Cure book is back in stock. For nine months, it was out of print and used prices were up to $300. Make sure to get your copy today that has over 200 colored tables and graphics and over 400 pages of meaty goodness. We have a limited supply, so get your copy today on Amazon.com. And if you can leave a review, I'd be super grateful. Just to add to this, I just interviewed with Dr. Richard Johnson. He brought up that fructose, when you have a lot of glucose and fructose in your system to protect itself and balance, there are mechanisms that will convert fructose to glucose. It's called the polyol pathway. So fructose 
converts to sorbitol and then sorbitol um, converts to glucose and or, or it might have been the other way but essentially if there is excess fructose um, the body will support itself by converting some of it to glucose yeah all right so quick summary of this chart before we look at the other chart too much glucose in your bloodstream which is any at all exogenously anything above what gluconeogenesis provides for you to some degree that will lock that cell out to absorbing more glucose, hello insulin resistance. That is what insulin resistance is. Nothing else, there it is right there. Simple as that. It also locks out the PFK1 so that you can't process sugar. It also causes a pooling of acetyl coenzyme A, which locks out fatty acids as well. Nothing gets through anymore. We've got a cell that's jammed up. That means that both glucose and fat will start to pool in your bloodstream. Extra glucose pooling in your bloodstream gets metabolized to fat in the liver. Extra fat in your blood gets transmitted back to triacylglycerides in your liver as well. That goes straight to your adipose tissue, your fat cells, and you become an insulin-resistant fatty all because you're pouring carbohydrates down your neck multiple times a day. Simple as that. Now, if you're very, very active, like our friend Dr. Paul is, you can get away with this. If you're young-ish, as is Dr. Paul, you can get away with this. However, it will catch up with him and it will catch up with you if you take his advice and eat carbohydrates every day. You will be activating your Randall cycle. That will cause an insulin resistance problem sooner or later and all the, all the sequelae involved with that. Sorry about that. That's just the way it is. All right, here is the second way of looking at the same situation. This is Randall cycle situation B, if you like. This is the one that the plant-based supporters, the, the vegans will bang on. This is the one that they will present without presenting what I've just presented to you in terms of what carbohydrates will do to you. And they'll say, here's what happens if you eat a lot of fat, is what they say. Right. So once again, we have the blue, which is outside of the cell. We have the tan, which is inside the cell. And we have the green, which is inside the mitochondria. We have long chain fatty acids in the fluids outside the cell. They are transported into the cell on a transporter called CD36, as it turns out. Once inside the cell, a bunch of other enzymatic reactions take place and those long chain fatty acids are broken down into long chain fatty acyl coenzyme A. Long chain fatty acyl coenzyme A is transported from the cell cytosol into the mitochondria on a protein transporter called CPT1. And then through a process of beta oxidation, those long chain fatty acyl coenzyme A molecules become acetyl coenzyme A, which is that thing that drives that TCA cycle as per before. The only difference being that this acetyl coenzyme A is being derived from fat now and not so much from, uh, from glucose, from carbohydrates. If there is a lot of fat pouring through that cell because you've consumed a great deal of fat, then absolutely you're still going to have a buildup of citrate in the mitochondria because it's the same the same TCA cycle. That citrate will leak out into the cell cytosol exactly as it did before because it's the same citrate. That citrate will then be transmuted by an enzyme called ACL into acetyl coenzyme A in the cell cytosol which is a build-up molecule in this instance, rather than a breakdown molecule, that acetyl coenzyme A is then dealt with by another enzyme called ACC, 
or acetyl coenzyme A carboxylase, I think, from memory. And that forms a substance called melanol coenzyme A. Now, when that happens, melanol coenzyme A directly blocks out the mitochondria at CPT1, as you can see down here, meaning no more fat can enter the mitochondria. The mitochondria is fully replete with acetyl coenzyme A. Thanks very much. We don't need any more. It also will cause the long-chain fatty acyl coenzyme A through a thing called FAS here to start building up triglycerides, which then get exported to the blood, transported to the adipose tissue and stored there. Melanol coenzyme A basically is the molecule that tells the cell that it's now in an energetic condition where it needs to store fat for later. So instead of burning it, we're going to build it up into triacylglyceride molecules, export those to the blood. They can go straight off to the adipose tissue. Some of it gets stored. If this is a muscle tissue, some of it will be stored in the muscle, but most of it gets exported. Off we go to basically turn you into a fatty. At the same time, because we have a lot of acetyl coenzyme A, from all this fat, then our pyruvate dehydrogenase complex can't work and we can't produce a bunch of acetyl coenzyme A that way, again through allosteric inhibition. Therefore, we are now unable to use sugar so much. And of course, we get a backup of sugar in that situation. And then that other situation I've just shown you comes into effect and GLUT4 gets locked out. Hello, insulin resistance. And that's what the vegans will tell you. If you eat a lot of fat, that'll cause insulin resistance without telling you that so will a lot of sugar. Both these situations are in effect at once, at the same time, at all times. So what we've got really to boil all of this down to its simplest form is that a lot of fat will lock out both fat and sugar. A lot of sugar will lock out both fat and sugar. Basically, what we've got is too much energy in the blood will be locked out of the cells to protect the cells from damage. Those energy substrates will then pull in, this, in the fluid outside the cells, the blood, and then the liver will deal with those substances largely by storing them as fat on your body and your cells will be what they call insulin resistant while ever that situation is in effect. So what is the best way to lock yourselves out in that way and thus mean that you have too much energy on board, thus meaning that you will always be in a situation where you're storing fat and being insulin resistant all the time? Easy. Eat a diet which is rich in both carbohydrates and fats. If you eat a diet which is a carnivorous diet, which is rich in fat and protein necessarily, that's fine. If you, if you consume no carbohydrates, you will not be causing yourself a Randall cycle issue. As such, you will be lean and mean and fit and healthy if you subscribe to that diet appropriately and you do it for long enough to reverse the damage that you've done in years leading up to it. A lot of people think, you know, you change your diet to carnivore and everything will be perfect within five minutes, to which I always say to my clients that ask me, well, I've been carnivore for six months now and I'm still a bit fat and, you know, what? I usually ask them, well, how long did it take you to mess your health up? Why do you think it's going to heal in five seconds flat? It's going to take some time. Anyway, that's for another day. So a carnivore diet, no Randall cycle issue to speak of because there's no carbohydrate to cause a problem because there's no cross inhibition. There's no competition for the substrate to get through the cell. Great. You could also eat a vegan diet if you like because that's rich in carbohydrate necessarily and a little bit poor in fat. I say a little bit poor in fat because... There's still a lot of fiber in a vegan diet, and that still breaks down to short-chain fatty acids. Mm -hmm. Whoops, we've still got an issue. Just not as much as if you were eating a bunch of vegetable oils and fats as well. Like all these vegans are saying, eat a, eat a plant-rich diet, don't eat any oils, don't eat any fats, you'll be all right. You'll be slim. And it's true, you will, because you're not activating the Randall cycle. Right. However, what you'll also be 
is vastly, grossly, patently, nutritionally deficient on a vegan diet. It does not contain the nutrient you require on a daily basis to keep you healthy or to give you the longest possible lifespan, the happiest possible life. You'll be miserable. You'll be ill. Your health will catastrophically abandon you at some point, probably within five years on a vegan diet because it is so destitute of required nutrient. Sure, you're alleviating the Randall cycle by eating vegan. Absolutely. You're also alleviating the requirement for or obfuscating the requirement for uh, for nutrient and it will, you'll pay the price for that. It's the wrong diet. It's not the one you're designed for by natural selection over four and a half million years, which tells us to eat the flesh and fat of animals and not plants. We started eating plants about 8,000 years ago in the agrarian revolution. Absolutely disastrous for our health. We got shorter, we got weaker, we got less muscular, our skeletal structures shrunk, our facial, our jawline shrunk, our, our dental situation became a problem with all the wisdom teeth and cramming up of teeth. We got tooth decay from all the, the carbohydrate-loving bacteria in our mouths eating our teeth. We got gluten intolerance, you know, we got irritable bowel. We got, I mean, they've, they've looked at Egyptian mummies who, I mean, Egyptians grew a lot of grains and ate a lot of grains. Atherosclerosis, hitherto unseen, you know, all these things. What's really interesting is that if you think about the vegan diet and the carnivore diet from a Randall perspective, Randall cycle perspective, it makes full sense why a population of people will say they feel better going vegan because, like you said, Mm. they'll only disturb one part of the Randall cycle. Granted, they're just eating 200 to 300 and they're not Mm. eating much more than that in terms of carbohydrates. But like you also said, they will be nutrient depleted. So then if you go to the more, I guess, human appropriate diet or um, a carnivore diet, you're getting just you're again, not disturbing the first image of the Randall cycle and just focusing on the natural state of the Randall cycle. Yeah. But you're also getting the nutrient density, which is why most carnivores feel a lot better. Yeah. It's really interesting to think of it that way. Mm-hmm. But I want to ask you a few questions that I'm, I'm guessing um, some of the people will think. What if like I was primarily vegetarian or just eating a not carnivore diet, but I tapped mostly the glucose, like I'm a more of a glucose burner. Mm-hmm. But on occasion, I just eat the fat for nutrient density, but I limit it so that I'm not eating high fat and high carb. Is yeah. that even possible? Every single time you eat a meal which is rich in both carbohydrates and fats, you will absolutely oh, right. activate the, the Randall cycle okay. every time without fail. Okay. And the, the Randall cycle will probably okay. remain highly activated after that meal for a number of hours. Right. In the case of when you have mixed carbohydrates and fats. When you think about this for a minute, Judy, when people talk about going on a ketogenic diet and all the pundits will say to you, well, it's going to take you about 72 to 96 hours at least to get into ketosis. The reason for that is precisely because that's how long it takes to drain your body of those extra carbohydrates. So if you eat carbohydrates at any time, you can expect Randall cycle activation for 72 to 96 hours. So when people say, oh, I'll just eat my fat in the morning and my carbohydrates in the evening, I'll be fine. No, sorry. Right, right. And I'm going to get back to that about the mixed dieting in the carnivore space lately. But Hmm. I just wanted to ask you the question of, so you mentioned in the second graphic that if you are consuming too much fat, that it will stop. I forgot what the names are, but essentially you'll end up making more triglycerides. Yeah. So is there a point where on a carnivore diet, you're eating too much fat and then that will then also, 
you know, be non-beneficial where your triglycerides can actually go up yeah. in, yes. in the levels that are not ideal. Yes. Any, any time that your fat consumption is chronically higher than the amount of fat you are effectively oxidizing on a daily basis, there will be an overplus of fat and that will be stored as, as triacylglyceride, as fat that will be stored on your body as fat. Absolutely. Oh, I just want to make the distinction though, because you know, there's a lot of people that come to carnivore and they're like, okay, I'm all in, I'll do meat. Hmm. But then they only eat the leanest meats because they're really deathly scared of fat. Yeah. And I don't want people to think that, well, fat makes you fat. It's just, if you eat more levels of energy than you need mm. then you can actually gain weight on a carnivore diet yes. but it's not solely because you're eating fat correct the, the the thing though however the thing that kind of um balances all of that out judy is i challenge you to chronically overconsume food on a strictly 100 percent carnivore diet go for it we'll wait you can't do it but if you add okay i, I agree if you only use meats but mm. if you add cheese mm. if you add dairy mm. if you add other higher like with little little bits of carbs i do think you can overeat so if you eat yes. a lot of bacon yes if you eat a lot of cheese yes. a lot more of the processed maybe Absolutely. Okay. so yeah. that's where my only caveat yes. would be right but if you ate true just yes meat and fat no dairy just meat and fat salt <laughs> and water rinse and repeat okay. i challenge you to overeat on that diet for you need to be able to do it for okay. a couple of weeks Fair i've enough. just done it for a couple of weeks myself with malice of forethought, with a particular goal in mind called priming, which is for another day. But the, by the end of two weeks of overeating on meat and fat, my body was like, that is enough, Charlie Brown, no more. You can't do it. Yeah, the, the satiety signals, the hormone levels, everything right, are yeah. such that you, you simply will not chronically overeat on that diet. So it won't happen. Interesting that you bring up the high-protein, low-fat approach to carnivore. Also a mistake, by the way above a certain level. Here's why. Some of the amino acids that you find in protein are gluconeogenic in nature. And if you consume too many of those, what will happen is your body will not be able to use those to incorporate into your protein structures because your, your body's fully replete with all the protein it needs. We have all this excess protein now. What your body will do is whip off the amino section, the NH4, leaving behind ostensibly a carbohydrate structure, which will then transmute through gluconeogenesis into, guess what? Sugar. And then that will be stored as triase or glyceride or as fat because you will now have too much sugar. You can have too much blood sugar because you have taken in too much protein. By the same token, if you don't take in enough protein, if your protein level is too low, here's what happens. That will mean that you will have no effective insulin spiking during the day because if you're only eating proteins and not carbohydrates, protein is your only source of glucose spikes, which is your only yeah. source of insulin. If you don't have insulin spiking during the day in your meals, then what happens is you'll start wasting electrolytes because your kidneys rely on the insulin to help them to retain your sodium, potassium, your chloride, etc., all those electrolytes that keep you viable, and you will start to suffer electrolyte disturbances. That is what happened to Dr. Saladino. He was not eating enough protein for him. He said the solution was to eat carbohydrates, thus causing an insulin spike, thus meaning he wouldn't waste his 
electrolytes anymore, but he's robbing Peter to pay Paul. He's solving an electrolyte problem that he could have solved by, by eating more protein, and instead he's eating carbohydrates, which are activating his Randall cycle, for which he will pay the price at some point. What's interesting is, and this was totally my rationalization, um, it makes total sense with the Randall cycle, the insulin being too low, and then him not holding on to his electrolytes. I always thought it was He's a big proponent of grass-finished meats, which mm. tend to be on the leaner side. I know he mentioned he ate suet, but I don't think he ate a like a 70-30 type of breakdown of fats to protein. And I guess that maybe he was feeling low energy. Maybe some of it was electrolytes, but maybe it was also that he wasn't eating enough fat. Mm. So he wasn't getting an energy source, not from glucose, maybe the gluconeogenesis, but not sufficient enough. But then he was also eating a lot of organ meats, which is a burden on the actual liver and kidneys, mm. which with also the high amounts of purines on the kidneys and then the liver, the vitamin, the fat soluble vitamins. Yeah. So I was wondering if maybe if he just had eaten more fat, he that would too, have had perhaps, more yeah. energy. Perhaps that too. Absolutely. Yep. That's, that's perfectly, perfectly yeah, reasonable as well. I'm glad you mentioned the organ meats things, not necessary people for, for the vast majority of individuals, yeah. you do not need to eat organ meats and you certainly do not need to buy expensive desiccated organ meat supplements from Dr. Saladino or anybody else. Okay. You can derive all the nutrition you require from muscle meats and associated fat of large ruminant animals, preferably grass fed. Um, also, it's a good idea to add a significant amount of butter to the meats you're eating as well for both short-chain fatty acid intake and also to make sure that your fat intake is sufficient for your nutrient requirements. It really is simple. It does not need overcomplicating. You do not need to second-guess this. Yeah. You do not need to change your diet every six months because suddenly it's all gone wrong. You, you just need to do it right in the first place. And that's it. Basically. And consistency. Con yeah, absolutely. Consistently do it correctly. My question then is, you know, a lot of people have added fruits to their meat only diet and they say their sleep is better, their energy is better and everything has changed for them. What are like, why, if, if both of them are now activating the Randall cycle, is it one that they're too early in this switch of a journey? So they're not seeing the adverse effects or why are they just feeling like they feel better? Because if you eat fruit... Fruit is the sugar and fruit is fructose. Fructose does not actually become right. carbohydrate in the form of glucose. It is dealt with directly by the liver and it is transmuted in the body directly to triacylglyceride, in other words, fat. And that fat is stored on your body, which tells your body that it's over-replete with energy and nutrient. That can give you a sense of relaxation, satisfaction, energy to a certain level until you become obese when it, then it will become a problem however you will also because of the obesity or the obesogenesis or indeed because of even the mere fact that your metabolism is in anabolic mode that in and of itself right. necessarily means that you will be insulin resistant that's it's part of the inherent mechanism you can't get away from that so the fact that you're just storing energy and you're not ever tapping into those stores your body thinks everything's fine i can relax it's all good and you'll have those that sense of well-being 
to a certain point, as I say, once you get beyond a certain level of obesity, it's all going to turn very, very belly up for you. You're going to be inflamed. You're going to have all sorts of problems that, that come from that inflammation. You're effectively going to become a type 2 diabetic. If you go far enough, you will actually cause yourself to become a type 1 diabetic as well through that series of events. Fruit is what our ancestors lived on more than 5 million years ago. Fruit is not food for human beings. Now, let's get back to that two weeks a year thing with the berries and stuff or the seasonal fruits, okay. whatever. Here's the thing. When are berries, fruits, those kind of things ripe? At the end of the fall, just prior to the winter. Eat right. those things for a couple of weeks. Activate your randal cycle fully for a couple of weeks. Put some fat on that you can use for energy during the winter when plant materials and prey are going to be sparse. Yeah. Hello. Nature's a great thing, isn't it? Makes perfect right. sense. However, nowadays we fly it's funny food from all over the world, don't we? All year round. Mistake. It's funny because people will tell me, well, Dr. Saladino lives in near the tropics mm. or near the equator, yeah. and so he has fruit all around, so it's natural for him. But he's not from there. No, he not. just moved there no, not right. too long ago. That's right. I, I just find it, it's, um, anytime I share about fruit, uh, people get yeah. very upset. Yeah, Paul's genes are European in origin, not tropical. Yes. Simple as that. The, the closer someone's genes for the last 100 generations or so are derived around the equator, the more that person tends to have a capacity to tolerate those kind of food choices. Right. Still doesn't mean it's right for you. You're still a human being. You are still an obligate hypercarnivore, sure. and fruit is not the right food for you. Flesh and animal Especially fatters. the fruit that we eat, right? Especially the fruit that we eat nowadays – yeah. And I mean, my ancestors, I think if we were to go back, it's more from the Mongolians and they ate a lot of meat and milk. Yeah. Like that was their diet. Yeah. So I think it makes sense why carnivore works really well for me and mm -hmm. my parents who are both diabetic and had um, hypercholesteremia and now they're well eating a meat-based diet. It's just interesting that people say you can't do this diet long-term because the question is why? Like, why couldn't you do this long-term? Exactly. Everything they've got that suggests reasons why you shouldn't are all false. They're all reductionist. They're all based on epidemiological nonsense that is not even science, let alone, you know, all the all the things that we've talked about a million times, like, is cholesterol bad for you? No, yeah. it isn't. Um, will you die of scurvy if you don't eat a bunch of fruit? No, you won't. Will too much iron in your body be a problem? Not unless you've got hemochromatosis or a similar complaint. You know, so for the vast majority of people, absolutely not, because you'll excrete any excess iron you don't need. Same is true of cholesterol, by the way. Will red meat and give you cancer? No. Will red meat cause heart disease? No. No evidence suggests that that is so at all in any way, shape, or form. It's all ideology. It's all propaganda there to try and push various agendas on people. If you want to know about human nutrition science, the last place you should look is in human nutrition science circles because it doesn't exist. It's ideologically driven, it's propaganda driven, it's theologically driven a lot of it yeah. too, actually. Where you need to look is to the actual valid empirical evidences from science outside of so-called nutrition science. So we're talking anthropology, we're talking stable isotope testing, we're talking Darwinian. I'm not even going to call it Darwinian theory. It's a fact. Human beings evolve. Get over it. We're talking about comparative anatomy and physiology. All of those things point in exactly the same direction, and that is 
Human beings are obligate hypercarnivores. We are not designed for eating and um, for eating plant material. Not at all. Not ever. We don't need any of it. Not one gram ever. None. Sure, various plants and things can be used for medicinal purpose. We've known about that for millennia. Humans have been quite good at working out what's good for what in that regard. But but as in terms of food, that's animals, people, not plants. End of period. So what what should people do then when they don't feel good eating meat only? And let's say they've done it for six months, maybe even a year, mm-hmm. they said, and obviously we don't know like yeah. how strict they were and mm-hmm. their fat to protein, yeah. managing electrolytes. But yeah. assuming they did all that right and they're just like, my energy is diminishing on a carnivore diet, yeah. what would you recommend that they do? Yeah. Okay, so the first thing I always recommend in a situation where someone is not feeling good on a carnivore diet is to talk to someone like me professionally who can help them tease out what the cause of it is and put it right for you. You do need professional help on this. This is a way of eating. This is a lifestyle that has become obscure to humans because of 8,000 years of abusing ourselves with plants that was completely unnecessary and wrong. We still, a lot of us don't know exactly how to get the balance right in terms of how to eat properly. So that's the first thing. Talk to someone like me that can help you. The second thing I usually find out from these people is invariably, almost invariably, people that are having problems on a carnivore diet decided one day in a fit of whatever to go carnivore the next day, ham it over overnight, drop all the plants out overnight, right now I'm a carnivore. Worst thing you could possibly do. (laughs) Do not do that. It may well bite you in the backside immediately in terms of gut microbiome issues, diarrhea issues, energy issues, skin issues, all sorts of things can go badly wrong if you upset your microbiome by changing your diet radically overnight. Don't do that. Some people get away with it and go, it wasn't a problem for me. I changed my diet overnight. I'm fine. But then six months later, it starts to go wrong. It's the same problem. It's just delayed and it can be a long road back for people. So the, the, the first thing I would say to people is if you have not yet gone carnivore or attempted to go carnivore please talk to someone like myself who can help you transition sensibly and slowly over a period of weeks don't drop the plant material out overnight yes get rid of it but not overnight i hope that's clear well thank you so much for your time i mean from i'm going to try to break this down really simply and please correct me as needed or if you want to add in things but essentially when we are eating a higher fat and a higher carb diet the danger is that we are activating Randall cycles in both the higher glucose aspect as, and also the higher fat. Both of them then block out to even get energy really being utilized in the mitochondria. It doesn't get into the cell. And then that's how we get diabetes. We get insulin resistance. We get fat. We just get unwell. And so it's almost that we need to pick our energy source. Now, if you pick glucose, technically you could be a vegan and have the non-insulin resistance. But if you eat too many carbs and eventually you'll be nutrient poor and you will just literally look like you're wasting away. Mm. If you choose a carnivore side, which is mostly meat yes. and, and obviously adequate amounts of proteins, it is the most natural way to eat, but it really just supports the Randall cycle that's likely the healthiest. Mm. And obviously making sure that you're not overdoing the fat where you may be triggering some of that route to then produce triglycerides. And the easy way to test that is if your triglycerides are going up on a carnivore diet, which often actually doesn't happen. It usually goes down. Yeah. 
Spot Did on. I miss anything? No, pretty much. That, no, pretty much. That's it in a nutshell. The only word, um, the only one word of that entire spiel I would change is the risk. If you mix fat and carbohydrate in your diet, it's not a risk that you will activate the Randall cycle. Okay, okay, it fair enough. It is a fait accompli. You will activate the Randall cycle, and at some point, yes. you will pay the price for it. In, in terms of your health. When you think about the foods that are available naturally, not manufactured foods, foods that you can go out into nature, foods that you can go out into nature and get. If you rely on animals, you're going to get a protein-rich, fat-rich diet, and there'll be no carbohydrate to speak of because most animals don't store very much carbohydrate. In your body, you've probably got two or 300 grams of stored glycogen in your muscles, a little bit in your liver. That's about it. The rest of you is protein and fat. So if I was an animal predating on you, if I was a cannibal, I'd be getting a low carbohydrate feed off you, for example. Okay. Or if I'm a plant muncher, sure. for some reason, because I believe plant munching is a good idea, despite the evidence, which is absolutely clear and irrefutable to the contrary. But let's say I believe that plant-based diets are a good idea. I'm going to go and pick some flowers and chew on those or something, whatever it is, eat some grass seeds, those kind of things. They're going to be rich in carbohydrates. They're going to have some protein, less bioavailable than the form that we're designed to eat. But uh, when you look at the fats, right. most plant materials don't have a lot of fat. So nature already knows this. You mix carbohydrates and fats together, you've got a problem. Think of all the industrially made foods, all the processed foods, baked goods, all of those things. What do we do? We get fat and we get carbohydrates and we mix them together and we bake them up and say, eat that, it's lovely. So if you're going to do nothing else, get rid of that stuff. If you're going to go vegan, you will feel great for about three to five years. So when vegans say, oh, I'm vegan and I feel great, they're not lying. They do. They feel because they have alleviated the Randall cycle issue. Right. But three to five years later, their health will catastrophically fail them because of the nutrient deficiency, not true of a carnivore diet. Yep. So in terms of the the fruit and meat, my guess is I'm sure somebody listening is going to go, well, I only have one fruit today. It's mm -hmm. not a big deal. Mm -hmm. What amount of glucose, if someone is trying to you know, move the needle or biohack this whole Randall cycle, yeah. what amount do you think? <laughs> it's quite individual in terms of what your tolerance to that abuse sure. is. Make no mistake, any amount of fruit whatsoever is self-abuse. The immediate effect of that abuse on your body, as determined by your genes in the situation that you've placed those genes, the environment in which you live, your lifestyle, all individual, okay? Paul is very active. He will get away with this for a number of years and show no ill effect. Nothing that we can tell immediately. But tune in in 20 years from now if Paul doesn't wake up and realize that he's got this wrong, and you will see that Paul will have a problem. There will be a health problem, and it will be related to insulin resistance, obesogenesis. There will be a problem. I, I can't tell you how much of a problem yeah, it will I, be. It, it's, it's very individual. But it, mm -hmm. the, the best way to avoid a problem at all is to avoid the cause of the problem completely. It's like saying, how many cigarettes can I smoke yes. a day without getting lung cancer? Well, I don't know. But you, you right. might be able to smoke more cigarettes than I would. Sure. My grandma sure. smoked for 90 years and yeah, never got I, lung cancer. I, I, oh, sure, fine, great. N equals one. But that doesn't mean we should smoke. Right. Same yes, with fruit. I, I completely agree with that. Fruit is not food for human beings. Thank you. I think that's not how fruit was in nature. We have selectively bred fruit over generations to be sweeter, juicier, yes. less fibrous, more full of fruit. It's, it's another manufactured food. So just stay away from fruit altogether. Fruit is not your friend. You do not need fruit. And while I'm at it, honey. Honey is sugar. Oh, yeah. Honey is – like I've seen Dr. Saladino make videos suggesting that honey is not just sugar. Yes, it is, Paul. It is sugar. Sorry. 
Sugar is sugar and honey is sugar. Don't eat sugar. You're just asking for a problem there. So I know from my clients though, and even my mother who was diabetic for decades, who was on metformin, Mm. if they consume honey, their blood sugar goes up. So, I mean, yeah. Fancy that. Eat sugar, your your blood sugar goes up. Incredible. I can't work out how that happens. No, I I saw that video. I think I even responded to it and made a video debunking the so-called evidence that Paul showed. It was just absolute pseudoscientific crack pottery and nonsense. It was garbage, complete garbage from top to bottom. Okay. I was really disappointed. You know, I really thought Paul had a bigger, uh, had a better handle on science than that. Unfortunately, apparently he doesn't. I'm sorry, but that's the way it is. There was one a study that some of his, I guess, fans sent me about fructose and why fructose is not bad. Mm. And then I looked into the studies because I just am so tired of this conversation about how fructose is good for us. Mm. And in the study, the one of the conversations, I mean, the whole thing was basically funded by coca-cola who makes fructose rich sodas and it's just how did how did anyone miss this you click on a button for the you know the acknowledgements and the the all of the people that were part of that paper were part of were funded by coca-cola and how did we miss that sharing a study like that you know ideology so anyways where can people find you the best way to find me is to go to my primary i've got several but my primary youtube channel which is bart a health science if you if you put bart k b-a-r-t space k-a-y into the search engine of your choice the first 10 pages of results will be me you cannot not find me it's 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 impossible so that's the best way to go about that if you want to contact me directly you can email me. The email address you can use is on the front page of my YouTube channel under the About tab. Um, if you want to book in for consultancies, or if you want to buy some merchandise, support the channel in some other way financially, you can do that at bit.ly forward slash b-a-r-t hyphen k-a-y. Probably the easiest. I'm also on IG as bart underscore k. Um, I'm on Twitter as k-b-w-t. That'll do. That's plenty. And I'll put everything in the show notes. I'll put the videos you've referenced also in the show notes. I know you've had several videos on Randall Cycle, so I will put as many as I can so that we can help people. Thank you so much for your time. This was so educational. Awesome. I I learn something every time I watch your videos and this Randall cycle, even I learn more even today. So thank you so much. Also my pleasure. And if you don't learn anything from my videos, at least you will learn some new ways to curse. (laughs) Okay. I will talk to you next time. Thank you. Thanks, Judy. Pleasure. Okay. I hope that this interview has provided some more insight, provided you some more information as to what to do next if you are not trying to stay meat only long term. You want to just be very mindful of the Randall cycle and a lot of the other things I've brought up on my channel in terms of fructose, in terms of purines, in terms of hypervitaminosis. It's just things to think about when you are starting to add other things to your meat only diet. There's nothing wrong with adding back. You just need to find the levers and the ways to do it that makes sense for you and your body alone. I hope that this gives you one other lever to get back to root cause healing. Bart K is such a fun person and he's actually really sweet offline. So you want to just make sure and check out his channel. It has so much information. And while it's entertaining, there is a lot of education and information that you can really pick on when you listen to Bart K's content. While you're here, please make sure to like and subscribe. And then on podcast, please make sure to leave a review. Again, this helps me to get my information out there. Thank you so much. 
Make sure to eat a lot of meat. Take care of your bodies because it is the only place you have to live. I will talk to you later. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Nutrition with Judy podcast. If you liked what you heard today, please make sure to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app so more listeners like you can find the show. If you want more practitioner care and support, head over to nutritionwithjudy.com groups so you can get more real talk about carnivore, the environment, and root cause healing. You can also find my content on Nutrition with Judy's YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter and learn more about in-depth articles with infographics at nutritionwithjudy.com slash articles. You can find my two books, Carnivore Cure and the Complete Carnivore Diet for Beginners on carnivorecure.com and amazon.com. At the heart of Nutrition with Judy's practice, our mission lies with a deep, unwavering passion for service and community. We will continue to empower you to have the knowledge and tools to live a life nearly symptom-free because we firmly believe in healing and wellness for all.